Hey friends, welcome to RUF. Hey, before we begin tonight, I do want to offer an update um, and really an apology. So as you know, if you follow the group me, um, we had in-person large group two Thursdays ago and wanted to apologize. Uh, we have been doing our best to follow the rules, but we uh, obviously made a few students uncomfortable um, and they felt the need to report us to the university out of their fear and out of their um, feeling unsafe and just wanted to apologize and let you guys know that when we are back in person, we'll keep you updated when that will be. Uh, we are going to go above and uh, beyond in terms of making sure not only that we follow the rules, but what we restate and kind of reinforce the rules. But just wanted to apologize uh, for making some of you guys feel unsafe and also just thank you for your patience as we kind of have been shut down. The good news is that we finished our trial uh, trial. Um, yesterday, and the university has been very kind to us, and we are um, good to go moving forward, but just wanted to give you a brief update on that. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about, we're in this series, The Seven Deadly Sins, and tonight we're going to be talking about lust, and to do that, I want to read a passage from John chapter 4, starting at verse 7, and we're going to go down to verse 26. John 4, starting at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let me pray for us, and I want to dive into thinking about what this passage has to show us about lust. So let's pray first. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who knows us and loves us, who knows the places even tonight where lust is wreaking havoc in our hearts and lives and bodies and Lord, would you show us in the way that you ministered to and loved uh, this woman by the well um, so many years ago, 
Lord, it's still the same way that you love those of us who are in the throes and struggles of lust. So, Lord, would you show us that your love is greater than our lust? Uh, Would you free us who are uh, enslaved to lust by that love? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Years ago, John Newton, he's one of my favorite, I guess you could call him a Puritan, He had a little line that I love talking about lust where he just said this. He said, lust is like a mushroom. It grows best in the dark. And part of what I love about John 4 is Jesus is kind of shining the light of his love on the lust of this Samaritan woman. If you follow this passage at all, it's clear that she's had five husbands and is now living with a man in sin. And Jesus, as he has this gentle conversation, shares a drink with her, really enters into the pain and the tragedy and just the the wreck, the wreckage of her lust. I want you to see that for this woman, lust was the deal for her, either in being lusted after or into entering into lust with men. And the simple question I want to ask tonight for for me and for us is simply this, it's how does Jesus look at someone who is really struggling with lust? And I think what we might find, I hope, will be a surprise and a comfort to you. But the way I want to do it is ask kind of three questions. First, I want to ask what draws us to lust. Second, I want to ask what keeps us in lust. And then lastly, I want to talk about how do you begin to break uh, break the spell of lust. So first, let's think for a little bit about what draws us to lust. And what I want you to think about with this woman is think about at what point in her life did she decide this is where life and love is found? And what does she think as she kept going through husband after husband, man after man, what did she think that lust was going to do for her or give her? And I think the way that we could say it is lust usually tries to make three promises. It always breaks these promises. It never keeps them, but it makes three promises, three things that we're thirsty for. The first is that we're thirsty for acceptance, uh, for someone to be with us naked and unashamed and not reject us. You know, porn is a place where I can be naked with someone and they don't reject me. That's part of the struggle of porn. And at some level, I feel accepted. I feel known and accepted. Even if I know it's fake and through a screen and with a stranger, there's something that thirsts in us for acceptance, to be like Adam and Eve before the fall, naked and unashamed, to be accepted completely, not rejected. And lust makes that false promise to us that if we give in, we will feel accepted. But we're also thirsty for purpose to be part of something bigger than us, to have significance. And when we don't have that, we get bored or indifferent, lust can really have its way with us. That's why summer break or any kind of winter break might be a a hard time when it comes to your struggle with lust, when you think about the school year or when you get bored or when you get indifferent or when you get depressed. You can think about lust in the life of David. If you know that story with Bathsheba at all, you know, part of what that story is, the writers tell it to us in Scripture, part of how it works is that David, instead of being in, in battle with his people, he's at home, and he's lost a little bit of his purpose, and that's the place where lust has its way with him, and his boredom, and his loss of purpose. He's not fulfilling his role as king, but he stays home instead. And you get a sense in this woman that she's cynical about life, that she's lost her purpose, And what she knows, the well that she keeps going back to is the well of lust. And the third thing that I think lust promises us that we're thirsty for is we're thirsty for control. We don't want to risk conflict or rejection. We love lust because, to be honest, we hate intimacy. 
Real intimacy is a disclosure of ourselves where we're not in control of what others think, where we're not in control of what others might do. And one of the promises of lust is that it promises satisfaction without real intimacy. It promises the reward of what it feels like to be known and loved without the hard work of actually knowing and loving. Um, years ago, there was an interview with John Mayer where he was talking about a severe uh, porn addiction in his life. And here's how he talked about it. He said it like this. He said, pornography, it's a new synaptic pathway. You wake up in the morning, open a thumbnail page, and it leads to a Pandora's box of visuals. There have probably been days when I saw 300 naked women before I got out of bed. How could you be constantly synthesizing an orgasm based on dozens of shots? You're looking for the one photo out of 100 you swear is going to be the last. And here's what he says. But how does that not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? It's got to. And that's the sense that you see Jesus as he enters into the pain of this woman, as she is a woman who is lonely in her lust. Uh, there's the, the, if you studied the passage, you would know that she comes to this well at the hottest hour of the day, essentially lunchtime, just after what would have been normal in her culture it would be to go with friends in the morning, the cool of the morning, the coolest part of the day to draw water from the well. But she's alone by this well because lust has robbed her of deep and rich friendship and relationship. But she's also believed the lie that if she can just keep going to the well of lust, then she'll be okay. And Jesus meets her in this place where she's not okay. So first, what draws us to lust? But then second, think with me for a second about what keeps us in lust. You know, the way that we could ask it is, why not after the second divorce did she think this isn't working? Or the third? Or the fourth? Why do we keep going back to it? Why do we keep going back to that well Why do I keep going back to that place that doesn't satisfy? Why do we keep doing it? And I think there are a couple things we could say. The first is uh, simply guilt. You know, counselors point out that there's this thing in any kind of addiction or any real struggle called the guilt-shame cycle, where we give in, we feel guilty about it, and then in our guilt, we feel ashamed of ourselves, and in our shame, we don't know what to do rather, rather than go to Jesus who knows us and loves us, we go right back to that place, to that old well, hoping it will satisfy us again. Um, Guilt and shame are a huge reason that we stay in lust. We think in our shame, I'll never do that again. And then 24 hours later, we find ourselves doing the very same thing. Uh, Brene Brown, no one has talked about shame better than Brene Brown. She talks about it like this. Here's what she says. Shame drives two big tapes never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? The thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. Guilt says I'm sorry I made a mistake. Shame says I'm sorry I am a mistake. And I want you to see that Jesus, when he shows up at this well, He is showing up to love a woman who is covered in shame. We've already mentioned that she goes to this well very much alone in the hottest part of the day. But part of what you see as you look at John 4 and look at Jesus with this woman is she is covered in deep shame. Shame at the things that she's done. Shame at the things that maybe have been done to her. Shame at the place of of where she is in this current moment living with this man. Shame is just covering her 
And what I want you to see and begin to see is that Jesus moves toward those of us who are covered in shame, and he moves toward us to unshame us, to begin to lift that shame. That's why I love the way that Paul says it, is he took our sins to the cross, bearing their shame. Jesus is the great unshamer. So guilt and shame kind of keep us in lust. But I think the other one that's a little bit harder to talk about is also despair. If you've really struggled with lust for a long part of your life, maybe you've had that thought of, is this just the way that I am and always going to be? If guilt and shame make us feel worthless, despair makes us feel hopeless. Can I ever change what has to happen in my life to change uh, years ago, I read this, this, I guess it's really a short novella called The Devil by Leo Tolstoy. And it's fascinating because all the story is, it's about a married man with a family who gives into lust with a, a woman who works uh, for his wife. And the whole story is how that builds. The moment as he begins to be tempted by the lust with this woman and the, the way it breaks down and, and begins to form, and then he's in it. He's in this a full-blown affair and he's not telling a soul about it and he's covered in shame, and he's hopeless about how it might change. And what Tolstoy does as he ends this novel, he actually gives it two different endings. And in the two different endings, it's fascinating. The first ending is he's hopeless and doesn't know what to do, so he takes a revolver and he kills himself. But then in the other ending, he's hopeless, he doesn't know what to do, so he takes the revolver and he kills the woman he's having an affair with. And it's this crystal clear I would say beautiful picture. It's not beautiful, but it's a, it's a powerful picture of the way that we think lust is going to lead to life. We say in our hearts, please connect with me and make me whole. And we do in our bodies things of which we are ashamed. And yet we know if we're being honest with ourselves that it has led to death. It leads to death. Uh, the, the image that I think about in my own life is when I was in, I guess, a freshman in high school, uh, my struggle with lust had started at that point. And I remember being at this old abandoned high school and was playing hacky sack with friends. And all of a sudden, a guy that we knew from youth group, an older guy, drove up with a truck to empty some garbage. So we kind of went over to say hey to him. We didn't know him very well. But as we made our way over, he said, don't come over here. You don't want to see what I'm doing. And we're like, what? And essentially, he's like, you don't want to see what I'm doing. I'm throwing out a pile of dirty magazines. You don't want to come over here. Just go back, play hacky sack. We're like, huh. So we all went home. But me and my temptation, I ended up getting back in my little truck, drove back to that dumpster, climbed into that dumpster to fish out a couple of those magazines. And when I think about that moment in my life, I think about what lust does in our lives. It makes us feel like garbage. It makes us feel dirty and worthless. And yet it keeps lying to us that that is where we can find life, that we can find something to satisfy our thirst. Um, there's a letter in C.S. Lewis's screw tape, letter number nine. Listen to the way he says it. He says, all we can do, remember, if you know screw tape, it's, it's the senior devil uh, kind of guiding the junior devil. And here's what they say. All we can do is encourage humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced, something like sex, at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. And listen to the way they say it. An ever-increasing craving 
for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. And that's what keeps us in lust. And let's ask, lastly, how do we begin to break the spell of lust? And what I want you to see really clearly is that Jesus doesn't give her three steps to get out of lust. He doesn't set up an accountability program, which can be very helpful. You know, you thought that lust is where you were going to find life, is what he says to this woman. But what I want you to see is that I have and I am the living water. That intimacy, the intimacy of being known and loved by me is the only thing that will ever satisfy you. And I never break my promises. He doesn't give her a list of things to do. He gives her himself. Everything she thinks lust was going to give her, Jesus actually does. And what's beautiful, if we were to go to the end of John 4, is there's a literal revival that breaks out because of this one thing. What this woman realizes that she's come to see someone who knows everything that she's ever done and yet loves her deeply and wants her truly and has come to pursue her and to make her his own. It's a beautiful realization. It's the realization of the gospel, that Jesus knows every shameful thing I've ever thought or done, every regret that I've had in lust. He knows it about me, and yet he wants me. He loves me. He loves you. He wants you. You know, who, the way we could say it is, who has love for someone who's ruined six marriages? Jesus does. Who has love for someone who's lonely at this well, by herself, abandoned, rejected, because of the way lust has worked in her life? Jesus does. And the question for you is, have you found the kind of love in Christ that says, I know everything you've ever done, and yet I want you, and I love you? I'll close with this. One of my you probably heard me say this before, but one of my favorite movies uh, growing up and still one of my favorite movies is the movie Babe. And if you know that story at all, Babe is the little pig who's strangely begins training to be the sheepdog to win the top prize for Farmer Hoggett. And if you know the story, there's a moment where uh, Babe is talking to Duck and Duck kind of lets Babe know that even if you win top prize, you know what's going to happen. You're just going to be you know, bacon at Thanksgiving. And so Babe has this existential crisis he runs away, gets lost in a storm, almost dies. Farmer Hoggett finds him, brings him home. And this is where it gets really, really weird is as Farmer Hoggett sort of bathes Babe and is bringing, kind of nourishing, you know, nurturing Babe back to health. He's feeding Babe. And, and then the strangest scene happens where as he's trying to help Babe recover, he does this thing where he begins to sing over Babe. And then the strangest part of all, if you've seen the films, he starts to do a little jig and dance over Babe. And I love this scene because all the farm animals are crowded in the window looking into Farmer Hoggett's house, watching him sing and dance over this pig. And when I watch it, the thought that overwhelms me, the thought that these animals are so struck by is what sort of farmer sings and dances and delights over a pig and the way that it comes to my heart is thinking about it like this, what God, what kind of God delights and sings and dances over sinners like you and me, over lustful people like you and me? That's why I love the way that Brendan Manning says it, is that uh, the only God we've ever heard of who loves sinners like that is Jesus. And that's what we get to see 
as he loves this woman. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we pray that for those of us who are feel alone and overwhelmed by lust, that your love would begin um, to heal and free us, to change us. Lord, would you, by your love, um, bring us to the place where we seek the help we need? Would you bring us to the place where we're willing to risk talking about it with safe friends and mentors and pastors and interns? Lord, would you shine the light and the darkness of what lust has done in us? And would you, by your love, lead us into the light, lead us into the freedom of being known and loved by you, the God who delights and dances and sings over sinners like us. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.